0: I know we've been away for a while and there was a long summer break and we had to do a lot of thinking about the platform and how to communicate psychedelics better to you guys. But now we're back and with a person or a guest that is really, really important to me. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Gabor Mate, and he's a Hungarian-Canadian physician and author. He has a background in family practice and a special interest in childhood development and trauma, and in their potential lifelong impacts on physical and mental health, including on autoimmune diseases, cancer, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, addictions, and a wide range of other conditions. I have to say Gabo Mate was one of the people that impressed me most when I started to look into talks about mental health and trauma. I felt that Gabo spoke a language or used a language that was perfect for me to understand what ADHD or depression actually really was or is. He has a way of being emotional and unapologetic, but also referring to science. And that is a fascinating combination to me. I also think Mate is getting to you because he also talks about his own lifelong struggles and doesn't deny them. Gabor is a renowned speaker and best-selling author, is highly sought after for his expertise on a range of topics including addiction, stress, and childhood development. Gabor's approach to addiction focuses on the trauma his patients have suffered, and he looks to address this in their recovery. Again, the more I engage in psychedelic therapy, the more I realize how crucial this is for healing. In his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, Gabor discusses the types of trauma suffered by persons with substance use disorders and how this affects their decision making, especially later in life. But basically, I highly recommend all of Gabor's books. Such as, when the body says no, the costs of hidden stress, or scattered minds, the origins and healing of attention deficit disorder, which he co-wrote with Dr. Gordon Neufeld, and hold on to your kids, why parents need to matter more than peers. So basically, and, and it's exciting to announce this here, his next book is called The Myth of Normal. Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, is due out on September 13th. His second next book, Hello Again, a fresh start for parents and their adult children is expected in 2023. And I think this is going to be one that has also a huge impact on our healing journey we're all on here. And there's one thing I would like to add to this conversation and to this intro, My conversation with Gabor was in spring this year and it became crucial also for personal reasons. I talked to him about my recurring experience in truffle trips since I always found myself in my trips in various concentration camps. So our podcast turned into an integration session and Gabor explained to me how the experience of being in a concentration camp can be a symbolic experience. Why would I keep myself in a mental camp and not experience life in full? Gabo asked me. And maybe the conversation turned even further into a very interesting direction. Because maybe a concentration camp was my cultural vocabulary as a half German to provide me the idea of the worst existence a human being can think of. And also... I belong to the country, I came from the country that came up with these camps. In my recent trip in July in the Netherlands, my camp experience did not show anymore and something seemed to be resolved. I'm still working on it, what has been resolved. To me, this was an incredible step forward because still I'm embarking on a very long journey with my own healing and i'm grateful for people like gabo mate to help me with this so please enjoy the show listen to gabo talking about his ayahuasca experience which really touched me very deeply the way he talked about it and please read everything from gabo mate and your life will be better please enjoy the show my name is Anne felipe i'm the founder of the new Health club show podcast so far and um, as you've maybe seen, we had already a couple of very, you know, famous psychedelic people on the show, like Michael Pollan and, and, and David Bronner. Um, I don't know, like Robin Card Harris. I mean, all the people you, I think, know. But to be quite honest, you were the first person I ever heard of in terms of psychedelics. Really? Because I had met with... Um, your friend in San Francisco,
1: George, <laughs> exactly. So.
0: exactly, exactly, exactly. So, I, and
1: uh, I just saw him last week.
0: We're supposed to have a business conversation, and then we got into talking, and then he told me about you and how he actually had his Holocaust experience in the trip. So, yes. To be quite honest, I think you are one of the most important people in this whole movement because I think you can actually make a connection between, let's say, let's call it like an everyday trauma theory and the whole, let's say, whole new healing idea around this. So, my first question, of course, would be: How is your perception of the current situation now? In let's say, in the new the new war situation that we're just experiencing, because it seems that This is already a very new kind of trauma that we're just in the process of um, witnessing and experiencing.
1: Well, what I have to say here might, um, might be a little bit, more than a little bit away from the usual discourse or point of view. But I appreciate the question and it's a terrible situation, just human suffering again. In the heart of Europe, you know, it's terrible to see. Mm -hmm. But in global terms, there's nothing new about it. It's only new new if we think of a Eurocentric or Western-centric white person's perspective. Yeah. But in Yemen, in the last ten years, three hundred thousand people have died uh, in a war uh, uh, waged mostly by the Saudis with Western weapons and Western support. Nobody talks about that as a big tragedy, and it doesn't create a a trauma atmosphere anywhere. In Gaza, hundreds of children have been bombed to death by Western weapons. And in Germany, you can't even criticize Israel without being accused of being an anti-Semite. And I'm speaking as a Jew, as you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, in Guatemala in the 1990s, 100,000 Guatemalan peasants were slaughtered by the Guatemalan army with American weapons and training. In Iraq, half a million civilians were killed owing to an American invasion much further from American borders than Ukraine is from Russian borders. So while I'm in no way justifying the Russian aggression in the Ukraine, it's, it's a war crime. But to look at it as unique and somehow new is to be stuck in a very narrow ethnocentric perspective
0: mm. and not
1: global at all, because globally this is just going on and not just the other side does it, we do it. Look at Afghanistan, 200,000 people, 300,000 people were killed there, what for? Yeah. And all all of Europe participated in that crime. So from my point of view, yes, it's a traumatic situation and I understand that with more, but when we talk about refugees, yeah. I know that Germany particularly has been in the forefront of generosity in dealing with Middle Eastern and North African refugees. That is true. But I also know that that has changed in the last few years. In the New York Times this week, this Sunday, had a cover article in their magazine section about how attitudes towards refugees have hardened and become hostile throughout Europe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But all of a sudden, the Ukrainians are being welcomed with open arms. No, I'm not saying they shouldn't be, I'm asking what's the difference? So I'm just saying that we have to look at the situation with a global rather than a, an ethnocentric perspective. That's all I'm saying.
0: Okay, yeah, no, that, that I agree actually, because I mean, it also brings up the question, um, like you said before, like the first wave of new refugees to Germany, um, like how you would actually, try to treat like refugee trauma in, in the future. Yes. I think there's a new a way and kind of a new way of trauma around this, let's say modern refugees, basically it's called it just for now, modern refugees, because I remember talking to uh, people being Serbians and having experienced that war when they were seven and now they're in their thirties and have an amazing life and everything, but they still, every night they think of what happened to them when they were seven. So, yeah. and I think that's very an interesting thing to me, that there's a whole new way of, <clears throat> yeah, actually experiencing and also thinking about new refugee trauma. So how do you think this will play out maybe in, in the next couple of years?
1: Well, again, to put into historical context, um, <laughs> There were lots of refugees as a result of events in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, there were refugees from German atrocities, and then there were German refugees who had to leave the Sudetenland. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not getting into the politics of it, but from a human level, you know, I, I myself was a family that were refugees from Hungary in 1956. We actually came through Germany and uh, went to Canada. So I don't know that there's anything new in this world from that point of view, mm-hmm. but what is certainly true is that the number of refugees right now, because of um, wars that were perpetrated largely by the West in the Middle East, now in the Ukraine, uh, as a result of Russian actions, um, climate change and all that that we have an unprecedented number of refugees in the world and we really have to be asking ourselves do we live in a global world or do we live in um, countries with borders and barbed wire I'm talking about mentally now not just physically so um, we can expect generations now in the future to be carrying the burden of the trauma that they're experiencing now that's just how trauma works it's passed on so you know our our children's children will be still carrying some of the burden of what's happening right now
0: exactly and i mean um it's interesting that the last two or three weeks in berlin a lot of older people here um were expressing that they had like well you could say like a re-traumatization Mm -hmm. from the cold war times that they experienced and i mean as you know it's not that long ago if you go to checkpoint charlie you still can take pictures as a tourist from the you entering the eastern sector and all that yeah what i find interesting are there moments where you have like a re-traumatizing moment with your history as a jewish child being prosecuted by the nazis
1: Well, so I have no memory of Nazis because I was only a year old um, when I I spent my first year under Nazi occupation, Budapest, of course, and those events traumatized me. But I have no direct experience of Nazis. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't get traumatized by political events. Uh, I mean, I was born at a time when my city was being bombed. Two months after I was born, the Wehrmacht marches into Budapest, and the terrible extermination of hungarian jews begins um then i grew up under communism and, the, and then hungarian revolution in 1956 what can i tell you i'm used to terribly yeah. that's happening in the world and then i witness everything that's happened since you know i come to the west all of a sudden i get disillusioned with communism and i find out that the soviet army that saved my life is an oppressive and um, aggressive force so that's a disillusionment so i come to the west four years later i watched the americans kill three million peasants in vietnam
0: Mm.
1: on public television and the press doesn't even question it for a long time and i could go on i could talk about the million indonesians that were killed in an american-backed coup and all the other atrocities that i've mentioned in other words This is how I expect the world to be. Not that I think this is the nature of the world, but I expect these events to happen. So when Ukraine happens, or when Gaza happens again and again, or when um, Iraq happens, Afghanistan, I might have emotions, outrage, sadness, grief, but I don't feel trauma. Not personally, because you know what? This is the world I was born into.
0: I mean, that means you seem to be a very resilient person Um, because some people would have, with that amount of, let's say, input, it would be way harder for them. So wh- why do you think, or where do you think your own resilience comes from?
1: Well... First of all, let's not exaggerate my resilience. <laughs> well, it seems that uh, as, as okay. I always, say, if, if you know how resilient I am, ask my wife. Okay, okay
0: yeah. good. Okay, good. <laughs> it, okay.
1: It's, it's not. It's not that stuff doesn't happen where I have a traumatic reaction. You know, mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. doesn't happen around these big historical political events. But on the other hand, yes, you know, um, resilience. I think is a quality of any human being. I don't think it's a an inborn characteristic. Um, but I think it takes work. And I have to acknowledge myself, I've done a lot of work. Okay. That's what it takes. And, and uh, you have to look at all the imprints of trauma within yourself, how they show up in your thinking, in your emotions, in your reactions to people and situations. And you have to really explore that and uh, learn from it and, and let things go. But that really does take a lot of work for most people.
0: Mm. And also, I mean, like, with your work and, and also the movie that you're going to present in Berlin, I mean, it's like the, let's say the recognition of trauma is just, I feel like it's just starting to happen um, in the last couple of years, like what it actually is. And I mean, you explain it so well in, in this movie and in your books and in your work. Yeah. So. But I feel like, I mean, if I watched the movie again last night, I already seen it, but I wanted to rewatch it for the conversation. So, and yeah. it, I feel like there's hardly anybody out there like you <laughs> doing that job of just really kind of connecting the dots. And every time, I mean, there's so much on, about you and with you and on YouTube, people seem to really kind of, um, I don't know, like really craving the way you explain what is actually happening right now in the world, you could say. So how do you actually feel in that position that there don't seem to be very many people that actually connect the dots that you are connecting?
1: Well, first of all, this knowledge and this awareness doesn't belong to me. the great pioneering author and psychotherapist Alice Miller wrote about childhood trauma decades ago, you know, and she got mm-hmm. quite a bit of notice. Um, and so I learned a lot from her and I learned a lot from others as well. And there are other leading voices who talk about trauma. I have to have a special position and a special talent, you might say. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily because I see things in a deeper way than some of my colleagues. Because first of all, I have a broad historical view, like I've always been interested in the broad questions of the connection between individual and society. So I studied history and literature in university long before I went to medical school. And that's always been an interest of mine, number one. Number two, as a family physician, um, I wasn't specialized in one particular field like psychiatry. So I saw the impacts of trauma not just in the mental health field, but throughout the whole range of chronic illnesses. So in other words, I was a generalist. I had a broader perspective. And thirdly, I have a particular talent in expressing myself. I'm in a, I'm a good writer and a good communicator. So part of what people respond to is just my ability to say things in a way that uh, is understandable and, and, and ties things together. So um, I've also, you know, just a give myself credit. I've also learned a few things in life. Um, and um, in the Western world, we're so uh, focused on on the intellect and, 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 and the facts, you know, but a friend of mine said a psychologist said that you can't know what you don't feel.
0: Yeah.
1: a lot of the Western discourse, there's no feeling.
0: Mm.
1: And I do, I think, connect intellect and feeling. Um, within myself, and also my ability to communicate, and um, and then again, uh, Karl Marx said once that self-viewing is the first condition of wisdom. You know, mm-hmm. and um, as I said earlier, I've, for better or worse, I've done a lot of work on myself, which is um, essential, as I said earlier. So all that, so the work on myself my general perspective, my experience in a broad range of health issues and my capacity to communicate. I think that's what people respond to. I
0: mean, when you say you, you worked on yourself, I mean, I think maybe we can talk about it since it's also a little bit mentioned in a movie. So as far as I remember listening to your other talks and in the books, you also went to do Ayahuasca, right? In, in South America.
1: Uh, yes, at a certain point I did, Yeah. yeah. In terms of why did I choose to do this? In a certain sense, I didn't, you know, the ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. What happened was that after my book on addiction in the realm of hungry ghosts was um, published, and I was speaking all over the place on relationship of addiction and trauma, which is just self-evident, really. Um, people kept asking me, well, what do you know about the healing of addiction with ayahuasca? And I'd say, sorry, I know nothing about it. and then I'd go speak in some different city. And sure enough, somebody else put their hand up. What do you know about the healing of addiction? <laughs> Let's say, I don't know anything. And by the fifth and sixth time, I was really getting annoyed because I was thinking, for oh, God's sake, I just spent three years pouring my life into this book. Mm-hmm. And you're asking me about the one thing I don't know anything about, you know. Anyway, as I said before. Life is a way of knocking on your door. And this is yeah. life knocking at my door. And finally, the eighteenth time said, No, I don't know anything about it. Somebody said to me, Well, did you know that you could do this here where you live in Vancouver?
0: Oh, said, okay. Okay.
1: I said, Oh, because there was a Peruvian shaman came up here to lead some ceremonies. So I didn't go to Peru. I put I went to a suburb of Vancouver.
0: Okay.
1: We're in a tent in the summertime. Uh the shaman Poured the drink for a whole bunch of us. Then started chanting along <laughs> with other musicians. And my eyes opened up in half an hour. That's what happened.
0: And what happened then
1: when you opened so what, your so, eyes? So what, so, so what happened was that um, I drank this uh, terrible tasting mm-hmm. brew. Yeah, And um, in the tent, there was a young couple with a little baby. and And the mother was nursing the baby and the, the baby starts cooing and crying a bit and, and cooing and you know little baby like noises
0: mm-hmm.
1: and about half an hour an hour into the journey my heart just opened up and I just started crying and tears of tears of love rolled down my face and I realized how close my heart had been all my life
0: mm-hmm.
1: to, to myself to the people around me And I also realized why, because my heart was hurt so early. The only way it could protect itself was to close down. At that time, I was working with addictions with a highly addicted population. Every one of them had been severely traumatized. And um, I really understood that their substance use was their way of trying to get the love that I was experiencing at that time. And so what I learned was that (laughs) With ayahuasca, people can experience the deepest pain that they've ever had, which is why they keep running away from themselves. But they can also experience the love that teaches them that they don't have to run if they're in contact with that love. That was it in a nutshell. Now, it's not as simple as that. It's not as instantaneous as that. And it's not as if my life all of a sudden became... (laughs) joyful and easeful and beautiful. But this is what I saw. And I said, Yes, now I understand why people are asking me. And then I decided that yes, I'm going to start working with this substance uh, to help people with addictions and to help people with other issues as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously, like you're in Canada, and um, this is like one of the places that where let's say the psychedelic movement or like industry also is now very strong and it almost started there and as you sure you you observe this the last few years have been pretty um important for the whole movement or you could say also industry to it or ecosystem so what is your perception of the current situation now in in this field
1: well on the one hand um as michael Pollan's book the success of his book Mm -hmm. shows there's a deep hunger for new ways of approaching human suffering. And um, I spoke to Michael, and um, I asked him, he was surprised by the, the reception of his book in the medical community. And he says he was because he expected a lot of pushback. But actually, what he found is that a lot of doctors realized just how empty their cupboard is when it comes to ways of really helping people. And so they were very open and curious about it. So, in one sense, it's a wonderful thing, and and the work that Rick Doblin has done right. in pioneering, or at least in pushing for the legalization and and scientific study, specifically of MDMA, but by implication psychedelics in general, has really has caused a revolution in our understanding. And uh, more and more governments are actually at least thinking about different ways of approaching things in Oregon right now, mushrooms have been legalized, for example, that would have been really? unthinkable 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's on the one hand, and, and it's necessary. Uh, I'm not a psychedelic evangelist, I don't think they're going to save the world. I don't think they're going to save the mental health system either. I think for that we need changes on a much broader level. But at the same time, it's a modality that can do things that in the right hands in the right context. We have nothing like it in the Western armamentarium. I mean, really, literally nothing like it. I could tell you stories of incredible transformations. And so that's all really great. There are a couple of dangers, as far as I can see. Number one is that we medicalize it. So that a modality that traditionally has been used, not just to heal trauma, but to connect with spirit and to and to create community now becomes another medical tool wielded by doctors under certain conditions. That's a danger as far as I'm concerned. For example, ayahuasca it has a tradition behind it. It has a cultural background that we have to honor. We mustn't forget where it came from and who gave it to us, which is Aboriginal peoples in the jungles of the Amazon. So that's One danger is that we restrict it and, uh, in a sense, um, bleach it of its cultural context and meaning. The other one is that we live in a globalized capitalist world where everything is turned into profit. And uh, in the last few years, I've seen any number of startups by very wealthy entrepreneurs who, very often these are people who've had suffered, who achieved great success, but they had no meaning in their lives, all the wealth didn't make them happy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But in the transformation they experienced through the psychedelics, they really found some purpose. So they found these companies and other people just found them because they see money in it. So there's a danger of something that was designed for healing that becomes another tool of profit. And, um, that can really interfere with the legitimate use or the healing use of these things now that may be sound like an alarmist point of view but in general in this world whenever profit becomes the motive other things become secondary so i I think there's a real danger of that right now
0: just give us a moment and we will be right back with you and to show but I wanted to tell you about something. The New Health Club is a proud supporter of the International Therapeutic Psilocybin Rescheduling Initiative, a global coalition working to reschedule psilocybin under the 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances, with partner organizations such as MAPS, the Beckley Foundation, and Drug Science. ITPRI is working to bring down barriers to advancing psychedelic medicine. Please check them out at reschedulingsilocybin.org and consider donating to support their work. I repeat, please go to reschedulingpsilocybin.org and please donate to them because they're very important for the whole psychedelic industry. And now back to the show. You already mentioned it, that besides the, the substance or the trip, this can't be the only thing that, you know, changes then the mental health situation for a person, because when they come back from a trip and they go back to their shitty environment or to their abusive family, nothing much might happen.
1: Yeah, yeah that's true. But it's also broader than that. So it's true that doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, you come to a psychedelic experience for healing and you find some healing, you have some breakthroughs, That has to be integrated. Yeah. Um, But it's also true, you see, in the traditional setting, this happened in the context of a tribe. Mm -hmm. Now it's happening in the context of a culture that I think is very toxic. In fact, my next book, The Myth of Normal, the subtitle is Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Oh, wow. So people come from this, because I think the Western globalized Mm -hmm system generates a culture that makes people sick physically and um, mentally and so then they come back to this toxic culture where there's no necessary community there's no connection there's no follow-up so whenever i work with ayahuasca or any other psychedelic modality or any group and i'm working with a group in europe right now is that The importance of integration, of of staying together as a group, at least online, and maintaining the momentum and um, embedding what you've learned into your daily life in the face of a toxic culture. That's a real challenge, but it's very necessary. It's doable, but it takes effort and it takes intention. The broader issue with the mental health care system is that, number one, this society by its very nature generates mental illness on a massive scale, and we can see it now. I mean, the number of suicides are going up, the number of kids on medication are going up. Right. Um, childhood so-called diseases, and I don't call them diseases like uh, attention deficit disorder, are um, being diagnosed at a higher rate. Um, addictions in North America are significantly going up. Overdoses and death in North America are going up. Uh, around the world, the more people depressed, more people isolated, more people anxious, according to all the studies. So this society keeps generating uh, mental health conditions, problems. And as long as that's the case, there's gonna be a crisis, Uh, number one. Number two, the response of the mental health system to that crisis is utterly inadequate. The average medical student in North America, I don't know about Germany, or elsewhere in Europe, but I suspect very much that it's the same case, never even hears a single lecture on trauma, Mm. let alone how to deal with trauma, let alone a full understanding, let alone the full implications. They don't understand that ADHD, tuning out absent mindedness, um, psychosis, depression, anxiety, these are all normal responses to abnormal circumstances. And then if we only deal with the symptoms, we're not dealing with the fundamental dynamics. Most psychiatrists, most physicians don't hear that. They don't understand our, a lot of chronic illness like autoimmune disease and malignancy has very often a traumatic contribution to it. I can't even go into the detail as to why that's true. But my book in English, uh, When the Body Says No in German, when they're corporate SAC-9, I think. That explains all that connection. But the point is, the average medical person, mental health person doesn't understand these connections because they don't study it, they're not taught it. And so that even if, first of all, society keeps generating all these problems, and then we have a mental health system that completely misunderstands it and uh, has a very narrow perspective on how to deal with it. So that has to transform. Psychedelics alone will not do that.
0: Yeah. But I mean, since your book's coming out also about this, in the last couple of years, what do you think is the most toxic development in society, especially also in these very unusual times?
1: Well, um, COVID has had a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Um, because human beings have a desperate need for connection as part of our nature. There was already an epidemic of loneliness in the Western world, significant in the last few decades. That's a result of social economic changes introduced um, in the 1980s under neoliberalism. A lot more people isolated lonely and loneliness is a significant factor for physical and mental health issues. Now COVID of course exacerbated that significantly Perhaps it couldn't have been helped, but I'm not sure that we were aware enough of the impact of that. And I'm not sure as a society. I know we did everything people could do to contain the virus. But I'm not sure that enough resources or enough thought went into understanding the impact of this mass social isolation and how to create some responses to it. So that's been a major stressor. Then there's the terrific impact of inequality. Um, Under COVID the billionaire segment, (laughs) small handful of millionaires increased their wealth by 1.7 trillion (laughs) dollars. Wow. that. That just came out two days ago while other people became poorer. Now that inequality is a source of physical and mental health problems. So loneliness, inequality. Um, When you look at what stresses people, the research is fairly clear that the major trigger for stress, and I'm talking about physiological stress, which comes from emotional stress, are uncertainty, lack of information, loss of control and conflict. This world of ours is designed, or could be designed to make people feel uncertain, make them lose a sense of control, deprive them of proper information and create conflict. So those trends are accelerating. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there was an opportunity after the Cold War was over and the Berlin Wall came down and Germany was reunited to create a peaceful world, you know, to stop putting all this money into armaments, put them into human health, to pay attention to the environment, to put all the money into armaments instead of into saving the environment. That's not what happened. What happened was that armament um, manufacture went up. Money was deprived from social programs throughout the Western world, less so in Germany, uh, less so in some areas of Europe than in North America, but really universally. And so that we did everything, when I, say we, I mean, as a culture, we created everything to make the situation worse. And that's where we're at.
0: Speaking of the the current, let's say, refugee trauma, I, I feel like we almost have to go back like 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, in Germany, at least, with the um, other trauma, like the Holocaust trauma, which is also becoming a topic now, and maybe just in a few circles, but how also not obviously the Jewish population that got killed is traumatized by this, but also like the people... Who are now, I don't know, like younger people, but their families have also been traumatized as the aggressor. So yeah,
1: well, if I may say, yeah. again, I'm going to give you a point of view that you might not expect. First of all, it's true. One of the people I interviewed um, in my friend, in my new book is a woman called Bettina goering She happens to be the grandniece of Herman.
0: Okay, Wow.
1: And she had to deal with the trauma of perpetration inside her own soul and she did it, but it was dark and heavy for her. So I understand that. And it would be a wonderful conversation. She was born after the war, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that, that's true. Has Germany dealt with the Holocaust trauma? No, it hasn't.
0: No, no, not at
1: all. Uh, well, but, but not for the reasons you might think. They have admitted Germany's responsibility. So unlike say the Japanese who have yet to admit, the atrocities they committed against Asian peoples in in China and in Korea. It's still controversial in Japan to talk about the forced prostitution of tens of thousands of Korean women, Mm -hmm. never mind the mass killings, the massacres that they perpetrated in China. It's true. From that point of view, Germany has acknowledged its guilt and its responsibility. So that's a good thing. But has Germany learned anything? No, it hasn't. Because if Germany had learned anything, then they would be also willing to criticize Israel's oppression of the Palestinians and their regular massacres of people in Gaza and their occupation and the torture of children, which happens every day. All you have to do is read the Israeli press. Germany can't even talk about it without being accused of being an anti-Semite. Have they learned anything? They've learned nothing. What they've learned is we did a bad thing to the Jews and we feel guilty for it. But we haven't learned what's it like to be human beings who are willing to stand up for truth and against injustice. They haven't learned that.
0: Mm. I'm very curious about your new book. And I mean, that's incredible that you talk to her. I think it's exactly what this topic is about, because how do you think this will affect therapy in general that? those topics will suddenly be part of a therapy session. I mean, obviously, if you talk to her, she might probably have gone, mm-hmm. I, I assume, to, to tons of therapy.
1: Well, she did a lot of work on herself. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, and she continues
0: to. Mm-hmm. Like in the next 10 years, maybe, or five years. How do you think a topic like that, for example, in, in her case, and I know that a lot of Germans who go and do like a, a guided psilocybin trip in Amsterdam, see often themselves in the Russian war zone because their grandfathers were, for example, in Stalingrad or something. So, yeah. um, And yeah. at the same time, in my psychedelic experience in Amsterdam, I've been always in a concentration camp in every experience. So how do you think these kind of, let's say, new insights into transgenerational trauma will affect therapy? Like Maybe even without psychedelics, like just uh, well, regular well,
1: therapy. Well, so here's the thing: um, if I was working with you,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> and and you find yourself in a concentration camp,
0: yeah,
1: I would guide you to your own experience, not to something that happened before you were born, but to something that happened while you were alive, to you specifically. Mm-hmm. So the question I'd be working with you is: where did you feel controlled and in danger? and uh, not free in your life Mm -hmm. and that didn't happen in a concentration camp for you i don't know you i don't know your history but i would very much suspect that this happened in your own personal life when you were small and helpless and uh, the concentration camp simply is a symbolic representation of that and um like here's how it works the second experience is a bit like a dream Now, I might dream that I'm being chased by Nazis and therefore I'm afraid. It's a dream that I had once. Okay, I'm Mm -hmm. being chased by Nazis and I'm afraid. Okay. so you think that in a dream, I'm afraid because I'm chased by Nazis. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. It's the other way around. What happens in a dream and also in a psychic experience is that childhood emotional memories get triggered you know the conscious mind goes offline and blood supply increases to the part of the brain where childhood emotional memories are stored. So what happens is I experience a sensation of fear and then my mind creates a story to explain the fear oh there the Nazis chasing me so it's not that I'm afraid because Nazis are chasing me Nazis are chasing me because I'm afraid or if I have a sexual dream it's probably because I'm going through a certain sexual charge in my sleep and then my mind makes up a story and all of a sudden I'm with this woman or something's happening you know so I would explore with you if I was working with you privately or in a context of a session is what's the emotional memory that might be feeding your symbolic experience of a concentration camp that's where I would go with it
0: that's a very interesting way of looking at it because in the integration, I haven't looked at it in that way because, I mean, I did three guided truffle experiences and I'm always in a camp every time. And I mean, I had certain childhood trauma and I think that has contributed that I don't have children. So, and in the last experience, I was actually, I saw myself kind of cut open in a hospital and Nazi doctors <laughs> were looking at me and saying, well, there's no life in this body here. Like we mm-hmm. can't do anything with her. And then the next second later, I'm looking to the Jewish community and the rabbi says to me, well, what are you waiting for? You belong to us. So and this keeps coming back like pretty much every time. Well, so, so that's yeah. really
1: interesting. I, I couldn't presume to analyze all that for you, but um, I would ask you a few questions um, about what's the emotional resonance of this, to things that may have happened to you. Number one, number two, in what ways are you keeping yourself restricted? And what way are you keeping yourself in a mental concentration camp? You know, how are you setting up barriers to your full experience of life? In other words, I wanna always take it back to the person because the healing is in the present. So the fact that I spent my first year in that terrible time in Budapest from 1944 to January 45, Uh, that's never going to change. The fact that my grandparents were killed in Auschwitz, that's never going to change. But how I relate to all that, and how I relate to myself as a result of all that, that can change at any time. So that's why, for me, the healing is in the present, and it's within the person. Now, as far as the Jewish community, I don't know. Um, Are you Jewish or not?
0: I'm considering converting, actually, right now.
1: Okay. Is there there any possibility of some Jewishness in your background, perhaps?
0: I'm just starting to get into this, but I know that my parents almost moved to Israel when I was 12, and I was super excited to go, and I wouldn't even know why, like, specifically. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just, I feel a very strong connection to Judaism, and I could never explain why that is before.
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you know what? I'm not even sure you need an explanation. Uh, I mean, <laughs> maybe you'll find more, but, but, but if that's what's calling you, then if you don't pursue it, you're keeping yourself imprisoned.
0: It's true. Yeah. Have you ever gone back to Budapest or like many times?
1: Oh, yeah. So I've been there quite a few times. I'm going again this October when my new book comes out.
0: And how does it feel if you come back? So do you want to leave after a while or is it, do you want to stay?
1: Um, (laughs) Neither really. It's just, I just just enjoy being there. Um, I love the language. I love the Hungarian culture. I love the architecture of Budapest. I love being on the Danube and looking across to the other side. Um, I love Hungarian history. And there's people that I really like to meet with. Sometimes I've been back to the, there's a house called the, the Glass House in Budapest, not too far from the main synagogue, where in the Second World War in 1944, early 45, the Swiss embassy maintained a sort of protected house. It wasn't much protection, but it was a little bit more than people had elsewhere. So my mother and I stayed in that house for one night but she gave me to a stranger in the street uh, because i was going to die there there was 2000 people living in a place for 100 people there was excrement all over the floor there was very little food people were sick i was sick but there's a museum there now so i visited that museum a few times and my name is on the wall as one of the survivors Mm -hmm. this is my mother's um i stood in the street at the very spot where she gave me to a stranger but what was interesting is that I didn't have much feeling around it. I was, I thought this is really interesting, and um, I was glad to see it. But you might imagine that it would trigger some deep emotional reaction in me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it didn't either, because I've healed or because I'm still in denial. I don't know which. <laughs> but uh,
0: <laughs> interesting. Okay.
1: But but that's so that's that's my reaction to hunger. I'm looking forward to going back again soon. Yeah.
0: Let's quickly come back to the new book that's coming out in autumn. So was there a moment that you specifically thought this has to be done right now? Was it a topic that was suddenly very urgent?
1: I first thought about writing this book about 10, 11 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. I started collecting materials in all that time. I collected 25,000 different articles including newspaper reports and scientific papers, medical journal articles and so on. I read through them, made notes on them. Um, I read a couple of hundred books or, or had an assistant, made notations on some and others, interviewed about 300 people. And about four years ago, I had a book contract to write the book and I just said, no, it's too big, I can't do it. And I gave the money back and I said, this just, I just cannot do it. It's too big for me too much pressure. I'm not good enough to do this book." And then all of a sudden, one morning, um, a year later, I'm sitting there having breakfast in San Francisco, and all of a sudden, a new title comes to me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And yes, I'm going to do it. That was about three years ago now. And since then, I've been working really hard to do the book. So this has been growing now for 10 years. As I say, it went dormant for a while. And then it woke up again. But writing it has been a real challenge. I actually, at a certain point, started feeling a significant anxiety and my blood pressure, which is normally very, very good, started going up because of the pressure that I was putting myself under. And I really thought this is too big. I have good things to say, but I don't know how to say them. Or maybe I got nothing new to say, or just all kinds of self-doubt happened. So I actually talked, to a therapist myself again, you know, at age 76, I started talking to a therapist again every week for a couple of months okay. to help me settle me down. And eventually I did it. In English, it's going to be a 500-page book. I wrote a thousand-page book. And then I had to cut it down and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. But you know what? In the end, it just needed, demanded to be done. And I've written the book that I have wanted to write, that I had envisioned that wasn't clear to me how to do it but somehow here it is so that's been the process so it wasn't like a sudden urge it was like a long journey to get this thing done
0: another thing I wanted to ask you is that like when I watched a movie again last night I feel like you see like how you really interact with people you talk to homeless people you really ask them what happened to them so you're really like a super hands-on guy, like if it comes to find out what actually happened to somebody. And that's also not very often the case. So is there a moment when this is also overwhelming for you that you have all these super individual stories and traumas and, um, touching stories around you where you start to forget yourself once in a while?
1: Well, the answer is yes and no. Um, Know in the sense that it doesn't threaten me or upset me or um, throw me off balance to speak to anybody with any degree of trauma. I mean, I've really I've seen everything, you know, and I think that goes back to my infancy, where the terror that I felt. There's a physician that saw me when I was a year old, and she said that she's never seen such fear in the eyes of any human being as in mine. Wow! So I've always been through the worst fear. When I was completely helpless, there's not much now that you can tell me that's going to trigger me into overwhelming, uncontrolled terror or fear or, or resistance. So that's the no part. The yes part is that if I overdo it and if I don't take care of myself, then I can get overwhelmed. So then that's happened. In fact, in my new book which i wasn't going to mention (laughs) i I, I talk about going to peru and have some shamans in the jungle tell me that you've absorbed the traumas of so many people and you haven't taken care of yourself so so the answer is yes and in the and in, in a certain sense the answer is no so it's not the degree of trauma that i confront or witness it's to what extent i take care of myself and to what extent do i forget myself to throw myself into the work if i do that i go off balance
0: what is your main tool to take care of yourself? i know that music is very important for you
1: well music is important to me um yeah. my, my wife is very important to me it, it, mm-hmm. you see that in the film
0: yes. yeah i yeah, know of course
1: So so she insists on on having a husband who is present and emotionally available. you know, she insists on that and and of course, you know, that's been my deepest work is in that relationship. Um, I do take care of myself physically, I swim two kilometers every day, Um, I meditate some but I do yoga regularly. I eat well, I get out in nature, I read good literature and good spiritual work. So, and I'm observing myself all the time. So, those are the ways that I take care of myself.
0: What is your favorite fiction writer?
1: If I had to choose one, I might say Dostoevsky. Oh, okay. Because he really dealt in darkness, didn't he? You know? Mm Thomas Mann is another great favorite, um, Buddenbrooks, The Magic Mountain. Um, that's
0: an incredible book.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I have to keep reading these books, by the way, you know, rereading mm-hmm. them because they demand so much. Um, Thomas Mann's Joseph and his brothers, just the beautiful, beautiful legends told so sensitively and beautifully and imaginatively about Joseph, the biblical Joseph and you know, the multicolored coat. I'm reading Dickens right now. I can't get enough of Dickens just because of his use of language and his wit and his inventiveness and the amazing characters that he conjures up out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I could go on. Tolstoy, of course, you know. Um,
0: What about the French? Do you like Camus?
1: I love uh, Flaubert. I used to read Zola, not so much anymore. Um, Stendhal, Red and the Black. And of course, what I really love is the classics. So I have to read the Iliad, you know, every couple of years, and the Odyssey, I just reread, and my God, I haven't even mentioned Cervantes, Don Quixote, and if there's one favorite book, it's Cervantes, Don Quixote, mm-hmm. that's just the greatest thing. Um, yeah. Then, of course, uh, the Divine Comedy, you know, and that's just, you can never read that enough times, and I, interestingly enough, I read several versions of the Inferno and uh, Purgatorio, but i have not ready at Paradiso. Maybe I'm not ready for paradise yet. I don't know. I'm not ready for heaven yet.
0: Where's your favorite place to read? Does it have to be super quiet and you're just in yeah. your room? Yeah.
1: Okay. Super quiet and super concentrated and super present, yeah. <laughs>
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.